0: My name is David Sabatini, I'm a member of the White Institute and the MIT Department of Biology, as well as Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the Koch and Broad Institutes. And in the third of a series of three lectures, in which I'm discussing the regulation of growth uh, by the mTOR protein kinase and the the pathways associated with, I'm going to discuss with you today ribophagy and its regulation by the mTOR pathway and the recycling of nutrients, particularly nucleotides. We now appreciate that ribosomes contain a large fraction of the amino acids and nucleotides in the cell, and so therefore they serve as a resource for the cell to liberate them when it needs them, particularly under conditions of starvation. mTORC1, we now appreciate, is one of the central regulators of growth, linking the availability of nutrients in the environment to whether a cell in an organism is in an anabolic or a catabolic state, and ribophagy would, would be an example of a catabolic process. The story here really begins with our efforts to understand mTORP1 biology, in particular, how it senses the diversity of upstream signals which are indicated here that the pathway can detect. What are the sensors for these signals? How are these signals integrated into a coherent output that then can talk directly to mTORP1, which can then regulate cell growth and eventually cell division? So, to tell you this story, I need to tell you a little bit about, in particular, how the pathway senses amino acids and give you a little bit of background on how this happens. For us, the story started really with images such as this, in this case a video, in which what you're looking at are cells that have been starved of amino acids, and you're looking at the localization of this mTORC1 protein complex. And what you can see, it's in this diffuse pattern in the cytosol. The black areas here are the nuclei of these two human cells. And when I start the video, a white box will emerge, which indicates where we've added amino acids. And what you can see happens is that very rapidly mTORC1 moves to certain localization the cell, puncta, in the cell. These turn out to be lysosomes, and mtrop1 moves there when the pathway is activated, and it comes off the lysosomes when the pathway is inactivated. This, as I discussed in my second lecture, led to quite a bit of interest as the lysosome as a signaling organelle, and you'll see some of that in this lecture as well. This led us to propose a model in which the translocation is one part of a coincidence detector. It's mediated by these interesting GTPases called the RAG GTPases, which are heterodimeric, and in fact they form the binding site, the docking site, on the lysosomal surface of mTORC1. The second part of the coincidence detector is a different GTPase, called the REB GTPase, and its activity is regulated by growth factors as well as energy sources, which here I'm exemplifying by insulin. You need both of these inputs for mTORC1 to be activated. One puts mTORP1 in the right place, and the other one turns on its activator, Red. If we go into a little bit more detail here, what we propose is that nutrients mediate the translocation. Here, I'm giving you the example of amino acids, but glucose would do the same thing. We've identified lysosome associated complexes that mediate the sensing, for example, the inside-out sensing as well as the placement of Reb on the lysosomal surface and what's known upstream. We haven't worked much on upstream of what's Reb. but there's a whole disease-associated complex called the tuberous sclerosis complex, which is connected to a number of different uh, diseases. In addition, there's a whole cytosolic sensing branch to the sensing arm, which I won't discuss too much here, but I did discuss in my second lecture. One of the things that we've been particularly interested in, what are the sensors for this pathway? None of these proteins turn out to be sensors, or none of these protein complexes, I should say, are the sensor. And the first one we identified was the sensor for the inside of the lysosome, which we now know is a lysosomal arginine sensor that we call SLC39. It is a protein of unknown function that seems to act as sensing and transmitting arginine levels across the, uh, the, the lysosomal membrane. In addition, we identified cytosolic sensors for arginine as well as for leucine, and a sensor for methionine, which works through the intermediate S-adenosylmethionine or SAM. So you can see there are a variety of different sensors for this pathway. Now I have to say the cytosolic sensors are rather simple proteins. They bind to one of these complexes in the cytosol, in the absence of their cognate ligand. When the ligand binds to them, they have a conformational change, and they fall off. When they're bound they typically either repress or activate the complex to which they're bound. The transmembrane sensor, the SOC39, is a much more complicated protein. It's a much larger protein, it has 11 transmembrane domains, and also lives at this very interesting interface between the inside of the lysosome and the cytosol. And so we always imagine that this protein probably does other things besides simply acting as an arginine sensor for this pathway. However, we had a challenge, and the challenge was that probably whatever it did was happening inside the lysosome. And lysosomes are a small fraction of the total volume of a human cell. And the cells that we've looked at, they're typically around 2% of that volume. So if something's happening in the lysosome, you're not going to really see it reflected at the level of the whole cell. So one of the efforts that we've had going on in the lab now for a number of years is to develop methods to very rapidly purify a particular organelle and that the methods be compatible with metabolite profiling, that is the quantitation of small molecules in that organelle. We first got this to work for mitochondria. Mitochondria are a lot easier though because they're about 10 to 15 percent of cell volume. And more recently, we've developed a method, we call it the LysoIP method, for looking at metabolites inside the lysosome. The method is conceptually very simple. You simply express a protein in cells, it goes to the lysolomal membrane and has a tag. In this case, these 3xHA tags. And then through a series of steps, we break open the cell and isolate with a magnet. Uh, magnetic beads, these organelles. It's conceptually simple, in practice, quite hard. It took us about a year and a half to two years to actually get this to work. There's lots of little tricks along the way. But as soon as it did work, it worked very well. And we knew that it worked well because we had a little trick that we could do. To validate that our method for looking at lysosome metabolites was working, what we did is we we treated cells with two different inhibitors of the vacuolar ATPase. And this is the enzyme which the lysosome uses to acidify the lumen of the lysosome, which is typically somewhere around pH 4.5. And that pH gradient between the lumen and the cytosol is very important for the lysosome to do many things, for example, transport molecules in and out of the lysosome. And if you look at this heat diagram here, this sort of clustergram at the first two columns, What you're looking at is whole cell samples treated with these two different inhibitors. And you can see there's very few changes. Each horizontal line is a metabolite. And this is because the lysosome accounts for a small fraction of the total cell volume, and therefore you don't see many changes when you just perturb the lysosome. In contrast, the third and fourth columns, which represent the lysosomal samples here, there's really dramatic changes, mostly metabolites going up very highly inside the lysosome when we inhibit the VATPase. This is best seen in this principal component analysis, where again the whole cell samples all cluster together, whether they've been treated with a vehicle or the VATPase inhibitors, while the two VATPase inhibitors are clearly distinct from the whole cell sample when we look inside of the lysosome. So using this method then, we did a very simple experiment where we knocked out this SLC39 Arginine sensor and looked at the inside of the lysosomes under those knockout conditions. We were quite surprised to see what we found. We found that most essential hydrophobic amino acids went up dramatically inside the lysosome. And the conclusion that we eventually drew was that this protein is not only an arginine sensor, but it's also a transporter for these key essential amino acids, and that this transport function is also regulated by arginine. So arginine turns out to have this interesting lysosomal signaling role, it turns on mTORC1, and at the same time, it releases from lysosomes the amino acids that mTORC1 needs to drive anabolism, because these are essential amino acids that the cell then needs to, use, to, do, use protein, to do protein synthesis. And so we asked ourselves, well, why, you know, is there this arginine sensor here? And there's also one on the cytosol. What might be the conditions under which cells care about this arginine sensor? Well, it turns out that many cells don't obtain their, free, their amino acids from, in a free form, that is floating around in the plasma or in the case of cells and culture in the media and then coming into the cell. Rather, what they do is they take up protein, put it into the lysosome, and break that protein down and release amino acids. And it turns out in cells like those, pancreatic cancer cells being probably the best example of those, this pathway is absolutely essential for cells to grow when you need to feed them protein for them to be able to grow and proliferate. And so one of the experiments we did is we knocked out this gene, and we asked, can we make a pancreatic tumor? And the answer is no. So if we take pancreatic cancer cells, knock out SLC-39, add back a control gene, you can see that we don't get tumors. This is tumor volume on the y-axis. If we add back the wild-type form, we do. Now, you saw that protein was sort of embedded in the middle of a number of other complexes. How do we know it's not a structural role versus a transport role? Well, we identified a mutant this T133W mutant, which has no activity, and you see also we cannot make tumors when cells, pancreatic cancer cells express that, that mutant. This is quite exciting, because it turns out that the pancreatic cancer cells mostly are driven by mutations in RAS, which has turned out to be largely undruggable, although there, are, there is progress in that space. And so this could be a way of specifically targeting these types of cancer cells, because most cancer cells actually don't, or most normal cells don't use this pathway as the way of obtaining amino acids. So one of the more common questions that I get, and something that we've thought quite a bit about, is why does the mTORP1 pathway sense lysosomal arginine? And I should say also lysine levels, which we have some evidence for, but I haven't discussed here. Why did nature evolve to want to know about the presence or absence of arginine inside of the lysosome? Now, because this lysosomal branch of the nutrient-sensing pathway seems to be particularly important for when the pathway is detecting amino acids coming from the breakdown of proteins, it made sense to ask, well, which proteins have a lot of lysosome and arginine? So what we did is we analyzed the UniProt uh, dataset for human proteins and their fraction of lysine and arginine. And I I say, there's about 30,000 or so uh, entries into this dataset because there's isoforms. And the results were quite striking because what we found is that many ribosomal proteins were very high in lysine and arginine. In fact, there are some, you can see the one at the top there, was about 70% lysine and arginine. Now, in some ways, this is not so surprising because these are RNA-binding proteins, and RNA is acidic, and you might imagine that it would bind to basic proteins, and arginine and lysine are very basic. What's important to keep in mind is that the majority of the protein in cells is actually in ribosomes, and this means, therefore, that the majority of lysine and arginine is going to be particularly inside of ribosomes. And so this led to the question, then, does arginine lysine and lysosomes signal the degradation of ribosomes to the Amtrop1 pathway? Is that why it's sensing arginine and, to a lesser extent, lysine? Because it wants to know the pathway has degraded ribosomes. This is quite challenging to test. What you need to be able to do is to block specifically this degradation. This degradation would be termed ribophagy. This is what has been termed in yeast. We'd need to find, presumably, an adapter protein that we require to bring the ribosomes to the autophagosome and eventually to the lysosomes and be able to block Uh, this step. Now, in our hands, we see very clear evidence of ribosome breakdown in response to starvation, either by amino acids or other nutrients, or by mTOR1 inhibition. And you can see here, these are wild-type cells, and you can see ribosomal proteins dropping over time, really at eight hours, where you start to see the most significant effects. These are three different ribosomal proteins. We can also look at ribosomal RNA, as I'll show you later on. We can also look at different metabolites as, uh, as indicators, now, this process is completely dependent on uh, autophagy. If we knock out a key autophagy gene, you can see that it no longer um, happens. You can see the knockout here. This is an indicator of mTORP1 activity, this S- S6 kinase phosphorylation. We reasoned that a protein involved in ribophagy would end up in the lysosome under starvation conditions or mTOR inhibition conditions. And so what we did is we, we modified our method for isolating lysosomes that we use for metabolite profiling for looking at proteins. What you are looking at here is every single dot is a protein, and those that come off the diagonal are proteins that either with amino acid starvation, nutrient starvation, or mTOR inhibition are coming on and off the lysosome. We knew that this had worked quite well, because if we look at the three proteins that make up mTORP1, they're very nicely regulated. In fact, they're very close to each other, and they're behaving exactly as we knew they would. There are other complexes shown in color, different colors here they are also behaving as, as exactly as they would. In fact, this data set has become an important one in the lab for people interested in dynamic proteins on the lysosome. Now, these are not the proteins that we ended up focusing on uh, in this study. Instead, of what we focused in were on these two different proteins here. Greg Wyant, who is one of the people who led this project, instead focused on these two proteins that I had never heard about before. One is called NUFIP1, and the other one's called ZH, ZNHIT3, hit 3 You can see what those proteins stand for. And when I asked him why he picked these proteins, he said, well, he found it was odd that NUFIP, which you can see has nuclear in its name, would be at the lysosome. It's supposed to be a nuclear protein. In addition, it was thought to interact with this fragile X mutant protein, FMRP, and it has been connected to ribosomes. So there was an interesting connection there. So if you look at the levels of these proteins in cells that have either been starved of amino acids or treated with this mTOR inhibitor, as well as a whole variety of markers of different organelles, including lysosomes, ER, Golgi, and peroxomes, you can see these proteins don't change levels at all. Nothing happens at the whole cell level. But if you look at the lysosomes of this method, the LysoIP method, you can see that the levels of both of these go up dramatically. This was interesting because these are known to be obligate heterodimers these two proteins interact together, and in fact, if you lose one, you lose the other. They seem to also be important for their stability. So this was interesting. Now the fact that the levels of the whole cell level don't change, but the levels of the lysosome go up, means that there has to be a movement of this protein from some compartment to another. It's the only way you could explain this. And indeed, NUFIP1 is a a nuclear protein, as you can see here on the left side. However, it's a nuclear protein in unstarved cells or on mTOR-inhibited cells. When you inhibit mTOR, it moves now to a compartment that overlaps, overlaps with LAMP2, which is a classic lysosomal marker. So I'm showing you this here and now in these immunofluorescence images, but we can also do the same kind of experiments using cell fractionations. So the conclusion here is that upon starvation, or mTOR inhibition, NUFIT moves from the nucleus to the lysosome. Another reason that Greg became interested in Nufip is that when he looked at its sequence, it was clear that it had a series of what are called Lear motifs. These are very simple motifs that are known to bind LC3B. LC3B is a very interesting protein. It's a protein that decorates the autophagosome. Remember, the autophagosome is what's gonna engulf cellular contents and degrade it once it fuses with the lysome. LC3B decorates that autophagosomal membrane and acts as a docking site to bring things to it. He noticed that NuFib had several Lear motifs. And so we asked, does it bind LC3b? And indeed it does. You can see here, compared to a control protein, it binds very well. In fact, it won't even bind to a related protein called Gabarap, which is quite similar to LC3b. More importantly, though, we could show that one of these Lear motifs matter for the binding. The second one, you can see that if you mutate it, that W48A mutation, we eliminate the binding completely. So this led to the idea that the reason that Nufip was ending up on lysosomes was it was coming bound to autophagosomes or in autophagosomes. And indeed, if we knock out the autophagosomal pathway, if we knock out LC3b, or if we knock out Nufip and then put this mutant that can't bind LC3b, Nufip doesn't go to the lysosome at all. It's completely clean. It doesn't show up in that compartment. In other data, we were able to show that NUFIP can interact with ribosomes, both inside of cells as well as in vitro. And the model that we originally developed is that NUFIP is a protein that cycles in and out of the nucleus. In fact, it has a nuclear localization signal and a nuclear export signal. And we can play with either of those and perturb the the protein in the appropriate way. The data that we had was that when you starve cells or you treat them with an mTOR inhibitor, the ribosome acquires some mark indicated by this blue star here. And this mark allows NuFib to bind to the ribosome. Now you should ask, why? Why do we think this? Well, the reason we do is that we can purify ribosomes from starved or unstarved cells, and we can purify NuFib from starved or unstarved cells, and we can mix them then in vitro. And we only get a good interaction if NuFib comes from starved or mTOR inhibited cells. The state Uh, sorry, the ribosome comes from star or mTOR-inhibited health. The state of NUFIP itself does not matter. We think then this traps NUFIP into the the cytosol, and then it can interact with LC3B. And when we do equivalent experiments looking at the LC3B-NUFIP interaction, we actually don't find any regulation of that interaction. We find that that's just regulated by the localization of NUFIP. So the question then became, was this process important for the breakdown of ribosomes by ribophagy? Is ribophagy at play here? Well, indeed it is. If we knock out NUFIP, so we have NUFIP null cells, and those are those first two lanes, you can see that when we starve them amino acids, these marker ribosomal proteins don't change. When we add back wild type NUFIP, the, sec- the third and fourth lanes, you can see now that when we starve them, ribosomal proteins go down. And very gratifyingly, if we put in that mutant that can't bind to LC3B, it looks like the knockout cells. So this is done by looking at ribosomal proteins. We can also look at ribosomal RNA. But really, the classic approach for looking at ribophagy would be to look at ribosomes via transmission electron microscopy by EM. And in fact, that first picture on my opening slide is an EM of ribosomes inside of autophagosome. And indeed, if you knock out NUFIP, we don't find ribosomes in the, this leftmost uh, panel inside autophagosomes. If we add it back, we do. And if we add back the mutant, we see very few. Now, you could say, well, David, this just says that NuFib is important for autophagy, right? There's no distinction between its role in ribosome breakdown, between the breakdown of anything else. But we have looked at a number of other substrates for what's called selective autophagy, where the cell doesn't break down everything, but it's breaking down select compartments or select complexes. For example, if we look at ferritin, NuFib has no role in the breakdown of this, while we know ferritin is broken down by a selective autophagy pathway. Likewise, we can look at the breakdown of mitochondria. Again, we don't see any role for it in that process. Now, if I go back to the first hypothesis we had, ribophagy is going to be important for the production of arginine inside the lysosome, and therefore the sensing of arginine by the mTORP1 pathway. Is this at all true? Well, the way we do arginine sensing is shown here in those first two lanes. We starve cells for arginine for about 50 minutes, and then we add back arginine for 10 minutes. And if you look at a marker of pathway activity, S6 kinase, you can see it's nicely regulated. What is far less known, and this is well known by many people, what is far less known, though, is that if you starve cells for longer periods of time, not 50 minutes, but rather hours, even in the absence of arginine, the pathway reactivates. And the reason that it reactivates is because the cell does autophagy, degrades its own proteins, and releases arginine. This is completely dependent on autophagy. If we knock out the autophagy pathway, this reactivation doesn't happen. The first two lanes are identical. The second half of these blots, there's no activity at all. So does NUFIT matter for this? And again, very satisfyingly, it does. You can see that if we knock it out, it doesn't completely suppresses. Autophagy would, com- would completely eliminate but it strongly suppresses. Arguing that in fact ribophagy is important for the production of the arginine that is then sensed for this pathway, and suggesting why then maybe the pathway would evolve to detect arginine in, uh, in the lysosome. So is, is this the whole story? Uh, we don't think so, because while the ribosome accounts for 50% of the protein inside of a cell, it accounts for a much larger fraction of the nucleotides in this case the ribonucleotides, that make up RNA, 80% is estimated in human cells. In yeast, it's estimated to be 95%. Remembering this reminded us of an experiment we had done that we hadn't paid too much attention to, and that is when we gave this very potent and strong mTOR inhibitor called TORIN, what we noticed is that many nucleosides went up inside the cell quite dramatically. That's the bar graphs that shown here. the the black ones, in wild-type cells. And that this increase was dependent on the autophagy pathway, the red bars. We've knocked out a core autophagy gene. This doesn't happen anymore. Incidentally, there's inosine here because the lysosome deaminates adenosine to make inosine. That's why there's so much inosine that you see here. So, if the ribosome contains a large fraction of the RNA and NUFUB is required for breakdown of the ribosome and the lysosome, knocking it out, should have an impact as well. And indeed, it does. Not as great as knocking out autophagy because there are other particles that contain RNA, such as p-granules, that are also degraded through the autophagy pathway. However, we had a little trick that we could do. And that is that we know that there are many modified bases on ribosomal RNA, particularly pseudouridine and 1-methyladenosine. These are, these are bases that are ribonucleoside bases, that are modified slightly. And the majority of these are in the ribosomal RNA or in tRNAs. And so we might expect that knocking out Nufip would completely prevent the increase in these. And that's the case. Here are two of them. Here's pseudouridine and and uh, 1-methyladenosine. These behave differently than those other ribonucleosides that can be found in other RNAs besides RNA and tRNA. I should say these modified ones can be found in other RNAs too, but at much, much uh, lower levels. So one of the classic phenotypes of cells lacking the traditional autophagy pathway is they're sensitive to starvation conditions. And in mammalian cells, this is typically done by putting cells into what's called hanks balanced salt solution. As the name implies, this is a buffer that basically has no nutrients in it. And what wild-type cells do, which is the first uh, little circle in this, in this uh, figure here, is they basically hunker down and survive. They don't die. You're looking at a well from the top where we've stained the cells that you can see on the bottom. However, if you knock out either of sort of two core autophagy genes, autophagy 5, ATG5, or ATG7, cells die. So this has been well known for a long period of time. So we wondered, well, what happens if we knock out just the ribophagy pathway of the autophagy system by knocking out Nufip? Indeed, we actually get exactly the same phenotype, suggesting that the breakdown of ribosomes is particularly important for the survival of cells under starvation conditions. A number of years ago, Eileen White had a remarkable paper where she showed that the survival defect of autophagy null cells could be s- completely uh, suppressed by simply adding nucleosides to the media. And you can see here this, we were able to replicate this very nicely, suggesting that it's the nucleosides that are produced during, rib- during autophagy that's important for the survival of the cells. And consistent with that, you can see that the loss of NuFib is also completely rescued by adding nucleosides to the media. These data then suggest that in the autophagic breakdown of cellular components, it's really the ribosomes, and in particular their RNA component, and therefore the nucleosides, which then can be converted to nucleotides, that matter the most. This has led, therefore, to this type of model, where starvation leads to the inhibition of mTORC1. mTORC1 then regulates NUFIP and the ribosome in a way that allows NUFIP to bind the ribosome. We think the regulation acts mostly at the level of the ribosome. This induces ribophagy and the production of nucleosides and promotes the survival of cells under these starvation conditions. We think this fits under a larger theme when if you look back and say, well, what are some of the core functions of mTORC1? We would argue it is in regulating the balance between the production of ribosomes, ribosome biogenesis, and the breakdown of ribosomes. And indeed, you can imagine that what we're looking at here is whether the cell wants the components of ribosomes, RNA and nucleotides, to either be in this free form, as on the right side of this balance, or in the polymeric form as a ribosome. And indeed, from this type of model, you can think of the ribosome as a storage compartment for these types of nutrients inside the cell, which otherwise there is none in the cell. We have a number of questions that have emerged from this work. For example, we'd like to know what is modified in the ribosome that allows NUFIP to bind. This is a very active area in the lab. And moreover, we're very interested in this step from ribophagy to the production of nucleosides. Many things have to happen inside the lysosome to produce the nucleosides, and then for the nucleosides to be exported out. We think there are many interesting gene products to study in that system. This is the work, really, of two very talented people in the lab, Greg Wyant, who's a student, and then Manther Aburamale, who's a postdoc, they developed together the method for looking at lysosomal metabolites and lysosomal proteins and really collaborated on the ribophagy story I just told you about. We also had tremendous collaboration with Alexandra Ori in Germany, who did the mass spectrometry for looking at the lysosomal proteome, as well as from the Whitehead Metabolomics Corps, which was led initially by Lisa Frankman and more recently by Carolyn Lewis. And you can see there on the left a number of, nutri- number of uh, funding sources that have helped our work, some that we've had for a number of time, and others such as the Lustgarten Foundation and the ACS Professorship, which are more recent. Thank you for paying attention, and also thank you for iBio for giving Mm -hmm. me this opportunity to speak.